This is Women Road Warriors with Shelley Johnson and Kathy Takaro. If you drive long haul, short haul, or heavy haul, they're here to empower and inspire women in the trades on TNCRadio.live. So gear down, sit back, and enjoy. Welcome to Women Road Warriors with Shelley Johnson and Kathy DeCaro. We're a show that works to inspire and empower women in trucking, in the trades, and every profession. We tackle all kinds of topics and work to encourage women to be their very best with informative guests and women who've been champions. I'm Shelley. And I'm Kathy. No topic is not allowed on our rig. We tackle the tough topics along with the not-so-tough topics. And we like to feature experts and celebrities who can assist women in being the very best they can be. More women than you think end up with someone who is not who they thought they were. It even happens with the very rich. The person you marry can end up being a shifty and dangerous shapeshifter who plunges you into the depths of despair and turmoil. Just imagine living what seems like an enchanted life only to find out your husband is secretly married to another woman with the same breed of dog you both have together, and he's stolen $96 million as president and CEO of Canopy Financial. So the FBI's in hot pursuit. Kimberly Blackburn was living a jet-setting, affluent lifestyle when her world was turned upside down by a stranger in her midst, her husband. She quietly suffered through abuse with this man, who lived a double life but was trying to keep the marriage together for the sake of their son. Then she finds out how bad it really is and decides to leave. Kimberly's tell-all book, Dirty Love, talks of her roller coaster ride as she flees her abusive husband after he turns their world upside down. We have Kimberly with us today to tell her incredible story. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you. It's an honor uh, being here today to to talk with you on this uh, very important subject. Yes. All I can say is, wow, your story reads like a major crime movie with twists and turns no one wants to experience firsthand. How did all this begin? Yes. Well, it's interesting because this book um, was just recently published and it, it's been a it's been an 11 month journey writing it. But to be honest with you, it's been 10 years since this period of my life. And what is in the book is not... Um, you know, a lot of the details you can, you can quick do an internet search and find out a lot more about, especially with the FBI investigation and the lifestyle that we lived. Mm -hmm. But as far as the abuse and the very private personal element to it, those were, were things that I didn't share even with my closest family and friends. And so in the last few years, I started to feel, and we know how trauma uh, can sneak up on you. Um, I thought I really could replace these memories with just a, a new life and, and diving into the care of my children and finding stability. And just in the last few years before this opportunity came my way, I just, I started to feel restless and uh, like I needed to dig back into that period of my life. Um, and before I knew it, a, a, this a book deal dropped into my lap and I, I thought to myself, well, maybe there's a there's a reason here for me to heal properly mm -hmm. and truly use this story in the life that I live to, um, to help other women, including myself. So absolutely. I know our listeners are going to want to know maybe kind of the cliff notes of everything. How did it start when you first met Jeremy and his climb and your climb to the top? If you kind of want to tell us the good, the bad, and the ugly. Absolutely. So starting back in my childhood years, I had a, an amazing upbringing, a loving family. I was an accomplished downhill skier, actually was on the a junior Olympic ski team path. Um, I was a, a competitive equestrian. I traveled the country. I had truly a storybook childhood. And going into college, um, I faced tragedy. My um, mother was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. So my college experience wasn't the typical experience. I would, I would be in school studying. And on the weekends, I would travel from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, back home to Minneapolis to help with the care of my mother. And she unfortunately passed away in it, while I was in college. And I believe uh, that sent me kind of thrust me into an adulthood. And um, for a period of time, I, I lost my dad to that grief. 
and I have an older brother and a younger sister. And we kind of all went on our own paths trying to figure out, well, gosh, I guess it's time to grow up without such an important person in our life. I ended up working, taking a job in Chicago, working in technology and my relationship with Jeremy, um, started in the workplace. He was, uh, very senior to me. He wasn't that much older than me, but he was a very, very brilliant mind, a very brilliant technologist. Um, and I, my first job out of college, I found myself in a relationship that, you know, this is almost gosh, more than 15 years ago. I knew we didn't talk about it as much in our society, kind of that imbalance of power and in relationships in the workplace. And honestly, with the tragedy and the sadness that I had been feeling from losing my mom, it felt, I felt important um, Mm. when I was staffed on projects with him and I received attention from him. And um, I, you know, looking back at it, I was, I was staffed on projects in New York city and all these amazing places that I got to see at such a young age, truly because of my relationship with this man I didn't see a downside. I was, I felt like I was on the fast track of growing my career and then meeting someone who, who really inspired me and our relationship quickly unfolded. We, um, you know, within a year of meeting, we were engaged to be married, but that is when I started to feel like the imbalance of power really started to take a hold. I ended up giving up my career Um, and he, as he was exploring other employment opportunities and we moved to Minneapolis and trying to, trying to kind of find my way really became supporting him and finding his way and his career path. And to kind of fast forward a few years, he, uh, while the control was very prevalent in our relationship, there were often references to infidelity and things that truly, um, weren't the case, it slowly escalated, uh, into more verbal abuse. Mm -hmm. And there were moments of physical abuse. In fact, I talk about in dirty love the, the night before our wedding, having an altercation, but feeling like it was too late to change course or feeling like, gosh, maybe this is me that caused this, the stress of our wedding, you know, already developing those, those personality traits that as women, um, we tend to do to support our loved ones. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And shortly after, within a year or two after we were married, Jeremy started, um, a software company called Canopy Financial, and it quickly picked up steam and he received significant venture capital backing, um, landed some of the biggest financial institutions in the country, country were implementing his software. And all of a sudden we were flying in private jets and I was driving a Bentley and we had, um, a million dollar home in Minneapolis. And I truly felt like, gosh, maybe the sacrifice of his work and the stress in our relationship was worth it because from an outside perspective, we had made it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But as a fairy tale life. Yes. But mm-hmm. as I describe in the book inside, I was suffering greatly and it was mm-hmm. made worse by that lifestyle because to everybody else, they, they envy it mm-hmm. and they don't. And even if they see the red flags or they, they question, um, you know, your behavior, it's, it's quickly softened by, well, wow, she's where is she off to next? And then for me personally, there was moments where I, I was so alone, but all of a sudden, you know, a two carat diamond earrings or a new car would show up and that feeling would soften, but it ultimately wouldn't bring happiness because we know those material fixes, they just mm-hmm. fill a void. That's a very, very sure. short term. So I talk a lot in the book about that dynamic and those feelings, um, being so conflicted in my, in my marriage. And then I get pregnant unexpectedly. And I spend most of my pregnancy alone, justifying that it's worth, worth the sacrifice of him growing this, 
this new exciting software company. And after Callan is born, we end up taking a major shift and deciding to move to Malibu. And it was against everything I thought we were, we were planning on doing. I mean, at that time we were talking about building a horse farm in Minneapolis, outside of Minneapolis and, and it shifted so quickly, but I took that leap of faith again, despite knowing that I was suffering in this relationship because there was more at stake. I had a, I had a baby to think about the idea of, of breaking up my marriage just didn't seem, it didn't seem right to me at that, that time, but I was still so, so young. So we, I take the leap of faith, move to Malibu within a month of being there. I receive a, an email from my brother who is in working in venture capital in Silicon Valley. And in the email is a link to an FBI investigation, a press release. And the email simply said, Kimberly, your life is about to get really hard. Wow. I am here. We will get through this. Within a month of moving here? Within a month of moving to, to Malibu. Malibu. Wow. And I realized that my life and the, uh, the way we were living was a fraud that Jeremy had been misappropriating funds to support a very lavish lifestyle. It was only about a few weeks after that, that I learned of his double life, that while he was claimed to be traveling so much for work and to develop business for Canopy Financial, he was also in another relationship. Oh my goodness. And by that point in Malibu, he was actually living with this woman part-time because he was having to split, split time, um, just a mile away. That's crazy. Wow. Now was he actually married to her? You know, it's, I was never able to, it it didn't matter. I was never able to confirm. I've heard conflicting things that he was engaged. Um, he was eventually married to her after, um, we did divorce. So, but in discovering all of this, here I am in Malibu in this $6 million home. And as they say, more money, more problems. I don't know that it's more problems, but it's different problems. Mm -hmm. So I had Mm -hmm. the FBI putting pressure on us and they froze our, our bank accounts and credit cards. But yet here I was in this house that I had to maintain. And, you know, all of a sudden I was forced to take a look at my life and say, okay, all of this has to go away and I need to find the safest path for myself and my son to start a new life. And I had to do it with so little resources. And at the same time of, of unraveling this, I had to face the really, the real element, the very personal element that I had been loyal to this man for so many years who just wasn't loyal back. That's so much of what I believed was based on a lie. Stay tuned for more of Women Road Warriors coming up. Industry movement Trucking Moves America Forward is telling the story of the industry. Our safety champions, the women of trucking, independent contractors, the next generation of truckers, and more. Help us promote the best of our industry. Share your story and what you love about trucking. Share images of a moment you're proud of. And join us on social media. Learn more at TruckingMovesAmerica.com. Welcome back to Women Road Warriors with Shelley Johnson and Kathy Takaro. We're talking with Kimberly Blackburn, who discovered her ex-husband, Jeremy, the former CEO of Canopy Financial, was misappropriating funds and had stolen $96 million and was being pursued by the FBI. She gave up her career and her goals to marry this man, who'd become very abusive, and she was forced to flee with her son with very few resources. Kimberly, he was engaged in a real power play with you. And he, he was. He put yeah. you in a vulnerable position. You had to give up your career. So I mean, that made it difficult for you to leave too, I'm sure. It did. You know, it's, it's, um, well, the, the perspective and the wisdom I have now, 
you know, it is hard for women. It's hard to have a family and to maintain a career. And sometimes the economics do not make sense. Mm -hmm. But where I really got it wrong is I had my own path in my 20s. And a relationship should have never shifted that path. Um, you know, our paths come together and complement each other in a very beautiful way. And right. sometimes you have to make decisions on the type of work we do. It, you know, should you want to bring children into the mix? But I, I gave that up. My path became supporting him because he, in my mind, he seemed to have so much more potential um, in creating the life that we wanted. But in reality, that life was based on things that ultimately don't make you happy, you know, a, a beautiful home travel. So that was the, the powerful shift in, you know, where we lose ourselves as women. And I, I do think in your twenties, naturally there's these, this pressure to check boxes, right? You got to oh, yeah. meet your soulmate find that perfect job, maybe have a baby, buy a house. And yeah. it's, and for some reason as women, if by 30, you haven't found that person, all of a sudden there's something wrong. <laughs> yes. There's this panic that sets in. Yeah. I, I think in your case, you were especially vulnerable. You'd lost your mother. You'd had a lot of grief. You were looking mm -hmm. for someone you could look up to. And I think you were enamored by Jeremy and, and his power. And it, it was sexy and it was appealing and it was exciting. And you thought, he's my knight in shining armor, perhaps. Yes, he hit the easy button for me. I, I mean, it was the years uh, in college were so challenging that um, when I met this person that was just so dynamic, he seemed to have it all figured out. Mm -hmm. It was it was easy. Mm -hmm. Um, and it didn't occur to me, I was raised by very strong women. Didn't occur to me that after, you know, working in New York city, after finishing a project that the joining him in his hotel room, watching reality television was inappropriate. Like it just, it didn't even cross my mind. Um, and the classic, you know, I remember confiding in my brother about it and he quickly shut it down telling me I was going to ruin my career and rather than listening to my older brother, I thought, well, who is he to judge? He doesn't know how much I've struggled with the loss of my mom. This is the mm -hmm. one really good thing in my life right now. Why can't he be supportive? And that truly was the first moment that, you know, you hear this, that um, abusers try to separate their victims from their support system. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, 100%. 100%. Started yep. in ways that I wasn't even, didn't even occur to me. It's very, it's very, very subtle. It's very yeah. insidious. And it's a gradual process. You don't even know it. It's like, what is the phrase? You put a frog in water and slowly, slowly turn up the heat. It doesn't even know it's getting boiled. Yes. Yeah. And it's an, yeah. an important part of this story because I think many people looking at it think, gosh, Kimberly, I mean, at what point when he grabbed you by the throat or said these things were you like, it's enough, you have a baby. Mm -hmm. By the time it gets that far, you have, you are so far gone, your confidence, your sense of mm -hmm. purpose, your sense yep. of self-worth that yep. you start to normalize those behaviors that seem unimaginable, that are unimaginable. So it took a, t a tremendous amount of courage for you to grab your son and leave after you found out all of these terrible things that Jeremy's living a double life. And then you've got the FBI and in this investigation and Jeremy's accused of stealing millions of dollars, which I see that he was convicted uh, in 2012 and sentenced to 15 years in prison for what he did. Yes. So it's interesting. And, and going back to the, the moment where I knew I needed to, to create my own life with my son, Cal, you know, on average, it takes eight times for a woman to get out of an abusive relationship. Yeah. I've heard something like that. Yes. Yeah. And I, in many ways, feel like if it was just the FBI investigation, I say just with, I mean, that's a big deal, right? Yeah. That maybe yeah. I would have tried to work through it with him, tried to, to, to figure out what happened, what went wrong, or if it was just the infidelity, I would have thought, oh gosh, you know, 
I, I still very much felt that loyalty to him, but having all of these forces at me, it in many ways made me kind of look up and say, gosh, is this my mom telling me it is time? Cause I truly have no choice. I need to separate from him, not only for, you know, and I had, I had no knowledge of what he was doing as far as his, his criminal wrongdoings with uh, misappropriating funds, but I, I needed to save myself from that. I needed to set a very firm intention that this is not something that I support. This is not something I had knowledge of. So that, which wasn't hard to do because I truly didn't. And our, our relationship had been estranged and very inconsistent for, for a while. Uh, but then when the infidelity hit, that was just that level of betrayal and that feeling of despair when someone hurts you that way, there was, there was no other path Mm -hmm. for me. And, you know, I, I hired multiple attorneys to help me work my way through it. Um, I, you know, was selling every one of my personal assets from my, my expensive prize show horses to my jewelry, to be able to afford these retainers and attorneys. I had to very, with the support of my best friend, really prioritize how to, to live in Malibu. I mean, at one point I, I, um, it was interesting. I talk about this in the book where, you know, living in the hills of Malibu overlooking the ocean, like to be able to support the beautiful vegetation. I remember talking about the avocado trees and citrus trees that I would, I would treasure these trees so much. They were kind of my sense of peace being out there when everything was crumbling. I had to stop watering these trees because I couldn't afford the water bill. And I knew I just had to buy as much time as I could with the with the very limited amount of money I had in my bank account. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I knew I needed to get back home to, to Minneapolis. Uh, so it was having to be incredibly resourceful after living so many years of truly just being entitled, not having a, a care or a worry in the world about, about money. Um, and I even show in, I'm in my story, the times where I, I miss that life and how the psychology of it, like, you know, every day facing this pressure, um, as a single mom and how I I wanted to go back now, did I want to go back? No, but it was just such a hard, hard process, um, not only psychologically, but also just logistically trying to make it work as, um, especially as a single mother. Well, your world had crumbled and what you went through is really, it's at a different level, but it's the same kind of a decision that a mother has to make and a woman trying to get away from an abusive situation. You have to prioritize. You have to figure out how can I do this with the resources that I have? Um, In your particular case, it was on a much larger scale, which probably makes it even more daunting. And you're going to have a lot of guilt somehow. It's like, how did I miss this? What did I do wrong? And of course, this is where the abuser plays games with the victim. They make us feel guilty. I did it somehow. If I'd done something different. And that's, I think, what a a lot of women go through. And that probably is why they keep going back in an abusive situation. Absolutely. And in my situation, and I, I really do my best in the story to talk about what I was feeling, what I was thinking and I share emails that uh, back and forth between Jeremy and I, and, and Jeremy was a very, very brilliant man and his, his mastery of like, just the language and, and his ability to convince me to play on my emotions and to pull at mm-hmm. those heartstrings. Oh, yeah. He was oh, yeah. so, so good at it. And yep. I talk about in the book, I show that his initial attempts of, of, of blaming me if I choose divorce and that how we would be another statistic and Callan would, would have to face Mm -hmm. that reality. But the reality was that he was going to prison for a very, very long time. Oh yeah. I mean, that wasn't a decision that (laughs) was even put in my hands, right? Like he created this. He created a major abandonment for his family. 
Yes. But even as this is coming to light, this investigation and the realities of, of his punishment still projecting that onto me and I become wise to it. Gaslighting. I, yeah. Yep. I yep. become wise to it. And I show in the book how that very powerful shift happens where I, I go from seeking his approval to then knowing exactly mm-hmm. um, what he's trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Kudos but to it, you. Yes. You know, um, I have been raised since I've been very, very small since childhood uh, in a very violent uh, environment. And uh, when even when I was nursing, uh, I mean, I'm carrying around these wounds from childhood and the men that I picked albeit I was a little drunk but okay okay maybe a lot drunk but um the men that I picked weren't the greatest and of course it it went from all that childhood trauma and and into just continued domestic violence and the play of emotions is is a continual and when I finally I call it the great escape when I was 42 I had to Technically, I had to unlearn 40 years of brainwashing and of, you know, being told how useless I am and how, you know, how awful and, you know, how I pollute the air and how I, you know, I'm a waste of skin and all that crap. But so I had to unlearn all that. And then the hardest part was trying to figure out, well, who am I at 42? I mean, I know I'm smart because I'm a nurse, but other than that, I didn't know what I liked, what I didn't like. It was like a whole new relearning of of who Kathy really was. I mean, if that wasn't hard enough, what was even more difficult was learning to accept how freaking awesome I am in in, in the sense of my my qualities and what I have to offer the world and, and learning to recognize like, you know, the light that I that I carry and that I'm able to give to others because it, it had gotten so lost in what other people's opinions of me were right so that you're right that shift is it, it's it's gradual number one it doesn't happen overnight but number two um, you have to be willing to be open to, to to see that you know you have to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear that's how I, I like to to say it yeah so, and, and Kathy it's so And even now with all of this perspective, with having written 50,000 words about my experience Mm -hmm. up until a month or two ago, I still struggled feeling like I wasn't enough, actually allowing people in my life to have access to me without any reciprocation and me just diving in in the way I so selflessly do, because it's just my Mm -hmm. heart. It's just my way of trying to prove that I'm enough by doing, I mean, if I, I told you the things I did for, for yeah, people, you yeah. would be shocked, but, but, but it comes from a place, right? Yeah. It yeah. comes from a place of trauma. It yeah. is that fawning behavior where you just, yeah. and in reality, in the last 10 years, while I was very fortunate to have some beautiful relationships and to have, um, you know, I'm so blessed in many ways. I never I never dealt with this trauma Mm -hmm. and I lost myself in a different way of just thinking, okay, I don't, I don't really know what my identity is. I don't know what fuels my soul or what gives me purpose, but for whatever reason, I thought that was okay. My kids were happy. Um, I was safe, but as we know, which is what you said at 42, there's just much more. there's a lot there's there's layers that you have to uncover and trying to like figuring ourselves out I mean that's the one good thing about aging is is that once you once you realize like hey man right like how come I didn't learn that before but yes um no it's very very difficult but the the biggest thing and like Shelly she 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 likes this phrase that I say you got to be kind to your mind yep you know, you have to, to learn to, to, to acknowledge that there's days that man, it's okay to not be okay. You know, it's okay to, to live in that moment, but then again, then that next day, get back up and then start over again. Right. Absolutely. And to honor, I mean, boundaries is such a hot topic. Everybody's oh, talking about boundaries. Oh my right God. Now. It is not. <laughs> I- I had to ask what it meant. I didn't know. I didn't know what codependency was. I'm like, what's that? Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I know it's, it's the, the way we talk about it, it makes it seem so black and white, Mm -hmm. 
but it's not. We all inherently, I think as women, we want to have hope. We see the best in people. You know, we want to take care of people. We want, you know, I, in many ways have been motivated by, I didn't necessarily have the support getting through this situation part in part by choice, because I was trying to cover, um, I was so ashamed, Mm -hmm. but in part because I had lost my mom and, you know, so I look at some people in my life and I think, gosh, I could help you. I'm in a position I can help you. Mm -hmm. You just, it's not always that simple. It's an, it's important to be very selective about who you direct your energy to. And I have learned that time and time again, even after going through this situation with Jeremy, um, I have still struggled with that. So I think it's important, you know, as I share my story, when I talk to women who, who struggle in their own relationships, I want to say, you know, I don't have it figured out, but I can tell you what I'm learning and what Mm -hmm. I've been through. Yeah. And it's so easy to be attracted to the same type of person if you don't actively think about it. For some reason, we tend to gravitate toward the same chaos because it's comfortable because we're used to it. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense on why the human mind works that way, but it it happens. Sure. Stay tuned for more of Women Road Warriors coming up. Trucking Moves America Forward, or TMAF, is building a positive image of trucking by telling the story of the hardworking drivers and industry professionals who support the industry. And you can be a part of it. Learn more about TMAF and how you can join and be a part of the industry movement working to build a strong image of trucking by visiting TMAF's website at truckingmovesamerica.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our latest channel, TikTok. Welcome back to Women Road Warriors with Shelley Johnson and Kathy Takaro. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. Abusive relationships occur in all walks of life. And women can find themselves in untenable situations with a terrible stranger that they've married who's leading a double life as an abuser, adulterer, and even a thief. We're talking to Kimberly Blackburn, co-author of Dirty Love, who's lived this very story of a man who misappropriated $96 million from his company. She was able to get away and start a new life. Kimberly, you've shared quite the experience. Why do you think women are drawn into these kind of relationships? One part of it is feeling like, you know, if you, you know, I talk about not feeling like I'm enough, feeling like I need to prove my worth. So until you really dig into who that person is and you Mm -hmm. can look at yourself in the mirror and say, she's pretty amazing. Like anybody Mm -hmm. who is close to me is really fortunate. I think you're susceptible to that, to those unhealthy relationships. And in Jeremy, like other abusers, he saw your insecurity and he just preyed on it. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And in the the second life he was leading, uh, I mean, she was younger and I, it was easier, right? You know, she had those vulnerabilities that I had when, when we first met, you know, it's pretty, pretty textbook. Um, now with him, the tricky, the mental illness, and I talk about it in the very last chapter of Dirty Love, um, is a letter to Callan, um, my son, who's now 14. And I talk about what I hope this story means for him. And I talk about mental health because Jeremy's path could have been much different with the proper treatment and the proper care. He truly was a brilliant mind. And it's sad that, that the system failed him in the way it did. And it's, you know, a combination of a number of factors, his, his upbringing, um, you know, his treatment plans, you know, I, I, I can't speak to it all, but that's a very important message out of this book is, is, um, the importance of mental health and being aware mm-hmm. of that in our, our yeah. relationships. What was his diagnosis? You know, I've never seen an official diagnosis. I saw, uh, court documents that, um, infer that he was bipolar mm-hmm. and, and manic depressive. Mm-hmm. And he definitely fits that description. It was, 
high with. risk, high reward. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I talk about in the, in dirty love, he was spending a lot of time in Las Vegas and I knew I assumed it was for conferences and speaking engagements. Well, I happened to take a trip to Las Vegas with some friends and Jeremy hinted at uh, some places to go and just use my name and a whole new world opened when I did. And I quickly realized I was like, well, gosh, Jeremy's doing something else here because he has a lot of power. And that chapter is, is very interesting in what I discover in Las Vegas mm-hmm. and was very indicative of the person that he really wanted to be someone uh, perceived as, as having it figured out, someone perceived as, as very powerful because when you do have money, especially in places like Vegas, you know, it buys you that. Sure. So, and people find it sexy. So he would have had a lot of people gravitating toward him. And that was his power. He couldn't find the power within himself. True. Which is sad because he truly was a man of many gifts. And, mm. but you're right. And the money, his generosity was to control people. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the insidious part of it. And that is so classic of an abuser. They want to control no matter what, because I think in so many ways, they feel out of control. Yes. And the irony is the more he tried to control, the more out of control he was. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in the end, you know, he was sentenced to prison. And the day before he uh, was supposed to report to prison, I, I received a phone call that he was missing. 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 Oh, good. And um, this w- was over a year after our our last interaction, and I was in a really strong place. But um, obviously, getting that phone call sent me into a bit of a tailspin, and I mm-hmm. picked no up, ca- grabbed Cal, and went for the nearest hotel to to try to make sure, knowing mm-hmm. the gravity of the day. Yeah. And um, out of fear, I I fled with Cal. And, um, a few hours later, I had learned that he took his own life and I talk about that experience and those emotions and dirty love and how I processed that the dynamic of this person that I deeply loved the, the, the father of my son, but that also feeling free finally. And, um, so I navigate that, you know, and do my best to, to share that, that insight in, in dirty love. Uh-huh. Wow. It's a lot. <laughs> it is. It is a lot. Yeah. The mm-hmm. amount of emotions you would have had at that point, you know, because you still, you had loved the man, you know, and it's still a loss and you're thinking, oh my, now my son doesn't have a father, even yeah. though it's Jeremy, a loss of hope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's Jeremy, a loss of what you build in your mind. Yeah. It yeah. sure is. But like you said, you were free in a way he, he set you free. So there wouldn't have been the visitations to prison with your son and having to explain all of this to your son and right. maybe the manipulation that Jeremy would have been doing with your son. Yes. And you'll see in Dirty Love, I actually put his, I after he uh, passed away, I received a letter from him and it talks about that. Oh, it talks good. about how it simplifies my life. But I'm curious when you read the letter, if you read it a second time, how you really feel about it. So um, he wrote you a letter before he killed himself? He did, yeah. Okay. Wow. And um, in many ways, he fell on his sword and talked about how much he had struggled with his mental health and and how much he's wronged me. And then he talked about ultimately wanting better for, for Callan and that it was easier to tell Cal that his dad was gone rather than his dad was in prison. And you see glimpses of this man that I think I married, but I also see glimpses of a, of a man that's, um, manipulating Mm -hmm. in his words. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. a, it's an interesting takeaway. I think it's a, um, reading it, you can go both ways on it, but I thought that that was important to see that. And that's why it's, it's, uh, in the book. Abusers do have double messages. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. They do. I read the first portion that you sent and uh, 
I was quite captivated. I got to tell you, <laughs> I was like, what? It's over. What? Yes. <laughs> wow. So yeah, no, definitely be Thank getting you. a copy of that. <laughs> yes. I, um, well, I would love to, I'll say, I'll, uh, send you a signed copy. I would, I would love to do that. Well, we'll but, trade uh, books. We'll trade yes, books. I would right? love that. I would love that. <laughs> well, I think it is a story when people hear, um, that it is, it does seem like a Netflix series. Like it's oh, hard it to imagine. And when I, when I wrote it and after I was done, I was, it was a mixture of emotions. I was like, oh, gosh, yeah. I'm, I'm thankful yeah. I'm alive, mm-hmm. yeah. but seeing it all, uh, seeing all of the events in front of my eyes, I just, I truly was blown away. I was like, yeah, oh, goodness. I, I'd say that uh, I talk about that when I, in my speaking engagements, yeah, I said, you know, it's one thing to know what happened to you and to know what you lived through, but it's a completely different set of circumstances when you actually sit down and put pen to paper. And yes. then you're like, Oh my God. It <laughs> is. It's very I, cathartic. I can't believe I'm alive. Yeah, yeah. It is very cathartic, but in a way it's powerful because your story, and I do believe it is a tool that psychologists use, um, especially with victims of trauma, that when you write your story, it becomes your narrative. There's nothing more or nothing less than what it is. And it it truly is a a step towards healing. And I believe Mm -hmm. it now after, after going through this process, it empowers you. And it's a way to put the threats to bed. Once they're on paper, you can look back and say, you know, I'm bigger than that. This is not going to get me down and look what I've done. It yeah. really drives home how strong we truly are inside. Like I know when I wrote my book, like I knew I had to, it had to come out. I, I sat because I wrote my book in uh, sitting in, in the equipment at work at um, in the water truck or the truck. Cause oftentimes we're down for weather. And so you, you have to stay in your equipment for 13 hours a day. Well, I got eight hamsters and one wheel in this noggin. How am I going to use my time? Right. So I decided to write the book while well, I wrote it in a month and it, it basically, I wrote it on, on a legal pad and it was basically one big blah to get the, 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 found, the, 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 the remnants of all that emotional crap out. And then I put it away and I never looked at it again. And when I went back, uh, when I got back home and I sat in front of the computer, now I had a clear mind. Now I could actually, you know, write what I wanted to write. Right. I had to get rid of the, the emotional stuff first because because oh, my story is heavy, right? So. Well, and when I started writing, and I I um I don't have a writing background. I'm a, me neither. I a, Never wrote I anything. Good, like I was nothing. a good student. Um, I think I'm a good creative writer. Like if you get a thank you note from me, you're gonna get like a full paragraph of yeah emotional. <laughs> so I I yeah. think I you know, now I see what I've written and it it definitely is a, is a calling for me, but I will say when I did start this process, Mm -hmm. I, my body rejected it in every way. I would bounce from coffee shop to coffee shop to bar. And I'm not even a drinker. I was like, well, maybe vodka will help. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) And, but to give myself permission to feel, uh, there was such a, it was a very interesting process because I really, my body really wanted to reject that. Um, and I felt it in so many different ways, Mm -hmm. but then when I finally got to that point, it took maybe three or four weeks, it all came and it all came as if it happened just yesterday. And that was made me realize that this is absolutely the right path and something Mm -hmm. I needed to do to free myself and, um, use it as a, as a place of power. It puts your life in perspective and you can truly see what you've accomplished and where you're headed. I think something like that, when you can actually commit it to paper, it, it gives you a roadmap for where the heck do I want to be in my future? And this is who I truly am, which is why I think therapists have you journal and that sort of thing too. So, but what yeah, you did absolutely. to step out of this, uh, even though you lived an entirely different lifestyle than a lot of the rest of the world, it's still the same challenge. You had to mm-hmm. figure out, yeah. how the heck am I going to survive now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I remember walking the University of Minnesota campus, you know, after I'd moved back to Minneapolis, thinking, gosh, I have all these attorneys. All of them are shooting in the dark trying to help me. I could do a much better job. I'm going to go to law school. 
But there then I'm thinking, well, how do I go to law school when I have a child? How do I pay for, how do I afford the student loans? How do I pay for childcare? Mm-hmm. I don't have any family close. How do I make this work? I know I'm capable of it. I know I would be an amazing attorney, mm-hmm. but how do you make it work? And so many women are up against that challenge oh, sure. mm-hmm. and um, it keeps us still in our relationships because we're, you yep. know. Women go back just because of that. There's security even in the abuse and chaos because they're taking care of children. They feel the need to just stay because leaving is too much of a challenge or scarier than staying in in their minds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an important step, I get this question often, what is the first step? For me, there was no choice. There's FBI investigation. I just, I had to take a step. But when you are frozen in a relationship and you feel like you do not have options, turning to that one person that um, can be unemotional and listen and perhaps someone you could bounce ideas off of to really define what the actual steps are to get out of this relationship. And if it's a financial concern, Sometimes just working through that process and seeing your worst case scenario and your best case scenario, knowing that it will probably be in between that Mm -hmm. is enough momentum to, to empower you to, to make change. And, um, you know, cause when we sit alone in our thoughts, it seems impossible. As I was walking that university of Minnesota campus, I was like, there's no way there, there's no option here. When we get enmeshed or admired or in our thoughts, we can drown in them. I think our thoughts can be like quicksand, just sucking us in. We can find every reason why we can't instead of saying, I can, I can do this. To step away and look at the whole situation, it's hard to Mm -hmm. do when you're right in the middle of it. It is hard, especially Mm -hmm. without someone that you can lean on. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And many women in abusive situations, because the abuser has kept them away from their support system, they don't have that. So that keeps them trapped, too. It does. Yeah. It really does take enormous strength to leave. Women often stay because they feel they have no choice. Or it's just an insidious pattern that they can't break. Wouldn't you agree with that, Kathy? Such a cycle. I mean, I speak to, I've spoken to at least a few thousand women over the years in, in shelters and in countries all over. And um, it's all the same. It doesn't matter what, what culture, what, what, you know, what nationality and abuse is abuse. And the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the bottom line is, well, the woman is stuck there with no finances, no no avenue of hope and no resources. I mean, I don't know about here, but I know in Canada, you can only stay in the shelter for 21 days. After that, they literally, they kick you out. Well, where are you right. supposed to go? Especially mm-hmm. if you have children. Sure. Right? Especially in the yeah. time of COVID, which has, has oh really my God. Yeah. hit our yeah. shelter so hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so it's very, that- very hard. It is. And a lot, and so many women don't have, I was so fortunate to have siblings who jumped in, but even allowing that support was a gradual process. I, I talk about in dirty love when I first, when I learned of the infidelity after the FBI investigation, I was so fearful of my, I had told Jeremy that I would never see him again. And I was so fearful of my life. Mm -hmm. I packed up Cal in the car. I drove from Malibu up to San Francisco and my brother was a bit, he understood that the, you know, that my insecurity, but he didn't know that I was being abused by Jeremy the way I was. And so the fear of my life, I, it, it's almost like he didn't understand that behavior. He didn't know where it was coming from. So I was seeking support, trying to, to reach out to people who really truly did not know what had, I had been living because I had built such a facade around our life. And I had protected Jeremy Mm -hmm. so fiercely. Yeah. A lot of women do that. And and a lot of it's based in shame. Well, look at me. I mean, I was nursing and I was in and out of the women's shelter. Nobody at work knew because I was really good at putting on that face. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Kimberly, Mm -hmm. you have a very compelling story here and all women can relate to this. It it really Mm -hmm. 
abuse has no financial boundaries. It happens to everyone. And really, when you think about it, the challenges are the same. Getting away, regaining yourself and your strength within yourself to go on. All of these messages are the same. And it's so very important. Where do people find your book? So you can find it on Amazon. If you search for Dirty Love and Kimberly Blackburn, you'll see it pop up. But another uh, place I like to direct people to is actually my my Instagram. And I am not, I have never been uh, big on social media, partially because I have been so guarded, um, as you can imagine from living the life that I've lived. But I have documented the last, oh, 10 months of uh, this journey and sharing my story. And it's in a pretty powerful way. There's a few interviews out there that I talk about my purpose and what inspired me. And there's a link, of course, to to purchase the book. But um, it's now using social media this way has uh, in many ways brought me back to life. Like I see all the sides of me that I'm starting to to really love to see. And I think that's the power of using it with with purpose and intention. So mm-hmm. I hope to to show that at least to to um, the people that want to dive into that part of me. Thank you for bringing your message forward. This is going to help a lot of women. And certainly there's intrigue in your life. People are going to have that. They want to see how the other side lives, if you will. Yeah. But then, then they'll realize, you know, um, women, no matter where, they're, they're experiencing the same issues. And I can do this. Kimberly could do it. I can do it. Yes. And to be still for a lifestyle, um, ultimately, it's not worth the expense of our mental health and our happiness. Oh, no kidding. You can't and, buy happiness. You can rent the hell out of it for a while, but it's, yeah. it's not yours. You know? Yes. <laughs> and I do. And I, it, it's, you, I, you see it on different levels all the time. The w- women that, that, um, lose their, their path, um, to support their spouse. It's hard as caretakers, but it is possible. It's, and it's important. Yes, it is. Thank you, Kimberly, for being on the show. You've got a very compelling message. You're welcome. It was it was fun to talk to you today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Women Road Warriors with Shelley Johnson and Kathy Takaro. If you want to be a guest on the show or have a topic or feedback, email us at info at tncradio.live. Thank you for listening to another great interview on TNCRadio.live. And don't forget, be sure to subscribe to our podcast of Women Road Warriors. It's free. All of the material you hear on TNCRadio.live on our website, our broadcasts, or our podcasts are copyrighted. There can be no distribution without the express consent of TNCRadio.live and its partners. For inquiries, write us at info at TNCRadio.live.